Welcome to Embargo, intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade. I'm one of your hosts, Tim O'Toole, and with me today is my friend, colleague, and co-host, Sue Millar of the law firm of Stevenson Harwood in London. Sue, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. I can't promise intelligent conversation. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes sometimes we promise more than we can deliver, but we'll do our best, I guess. Um so today, I think we're going to focus just on one topic. We're going to talk about the price caps, but um, I'll talk about the price caps here in the U.S., and you can talk about the price caps uh, in the U.K. And to get started, I thought I would just kind of give a little rundown on the U.S. side and then turn it over to you to talk about the U.K. side, and then we can have a dialogue. Um, so on the U.K. You, the U.S. side, and, and I, I'm guessing that these are going to be pretty similar because they were coordinated between the allies, but the, the U.S. And, and the G7 allies decided to impose price caps on Russian oil, um, and they began uh, in December of 2022 with price caps on Russian crude oil that OFAC put into place. And they used a rather unique mechanism to put those uh, caps into place. So basically, uh, what they did, at least on this side of the Atlantic, is that OFAC identified certain services that, if used in connection with Russian oil, uh, would result in um, would would be prohibited unless uh, the 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 price of the crude oil was below a certain amount. And then on December 5th, the Secretary of the Treasury announced the amount at $60 a barrel. So the covered services that uh, the U.S. currently prohibits if, if they relate to the maritime transport of Russian crude oil are trading and commodities broking, trading and commodities brokering, that's a hard word to say, um, financing, shipping, insurance, and that includes reinsurance, protection, and indemnity, flagging, and customs brokering. So those services are presumptively prohibited in connection with Russian oil. I guess the, other, the only other thing to kind of add to this is that basically the, the prohibition applies as, soon, as long as the Russian oil is, is being transported by sea. When it gets to a company or to a country and clears uh, customs. At that point, the prohibition goes away unless the items come back out to sea after they clear customs. So whenever Russian oil is at sea, if it hasn't been trans substantially transformed, the prohibition applies, but it, it goes away if it, go if it clears customs and then there's uh, land transport or if it's substantially transformed. So that's the prohibition uh, on uh, Russian crude oil that OFAC put into place, or it's, uh, maritime services in connection with it, on December 5th. Coming on February 5th, uh, there is there will be a new prohibition on uh, Russian petroleum products, s similar, almost identical terms to the prohibition. And both of these uh, prohibitions had what is, in essence, a wind-down provision. So if the, uh, if the oil uh, had shipped or the crude oil had shipped by December 5th, there was a pro prohibition or that there was a wind-down provision that allowed for um, an exemption to these prohibitions that continued until January 19th. So it just ended um, earlier, less than a week ago. And then with in connection with the new prohibition coming February 5th that relates to services provided in connection with Russian um, petroleum products, which is broader than the crude oil, uh, that has a wind down prohibition that ends in, in mid-March. So th those, are the, those are the basic rules of the, the U.S. side. And so now I will kind of pass it over to you, Sue, to talk about some of the, the differences or maybe the similarities with the prohibition on the U.K. side. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the basic reality is um, that all three regimes, the UK, EU and US regimes are pretty much aligned. The only real difference is that the UK regime contains additional reporting obligations. Um, and those reporting obligations are many and varied, depending on the tier of the um, the particular economic operator. Because as you know, Tim, there are what tier one, two and three operators and they have different obligations. Um, what I think is very interesting is that, first of all, I think it's really important to appreciate that um, the purpose of the oil price cap and the general license is not to permit the importation of trade, of sorry, of oil or oil products into the UK, the US, the EU, but it is to facilitate trade between Russia and third countries because the real issue, the political issue was that um, the G7 didn't want to be accused of basically preventing other third countries from having in energy security. So this is, I think that's one of the reasons that they came up with the cap. Um, and the other thing that I think is immediately interesting is that OFSI, which is the Office for Financial Sanctions Implementation, has been given the role to enforce the oil price cap and the reporting obligations. Um, you and I have talked about this before, Tim. Um, <laughs> I don't think OFSI has the statutory authority to actually enforce the trade sanctions. Um, it's very clear from Hansard that, um, but that's, that's the publication which records all of the parliamentary debates. It's very clear from Hansard that it was not the intention of um, the government at the time that OFSI was established for it to implement or enforce anything other than financial sanctions. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that we've talked about that is is quite interesting. I mean, I I don't think there's any real question on the U.S. side that OFAC uh, does have the authority to implement implement trade sanctions. Although it really started out as a financial regulator, OFAC has been imposing penalties in the trade realm now in connection with sanctions programs for a number of years, and and has pretty much built up a body of work that suggests that that's allowed. But from the UK side, are, do you expect challenges in terms of OFSI's authority to, to implement the price caps? Well, I said, I mean, it's very early days, um, but I suspect that if we get to a point at which um, an economic operator is subject to an enforcement action, that's going to be one of the points that they will want to take. Right. And I guess that, you know, one of the things that in, in kind of giving the background that I didn't spend much time on, but I, I think you brought it up a little bit, Sue, and, and that is the record keeping provisions. So, so, and I'm assuming that this is similar to the UK, but the US has what they've called a safe harbor provision. So if you are, uh, if you are, you know, providing these sorts of services and someone comes to you and tries to start an enforcement action, um, there, there are protections and they, they divide them into, you know, 
tier one, tier two, and tier three, depending upon the level of services you're pr providing. If you're tier one, you're dealing directly with the oil and should be able to prove that you bought the oil um, you know, at a particular price. The later service providers who are not dealing directly with the oil itself have, have in some ways lesser obligations, but they need to essentially get certifications along the way that the oil has met the cap. Are those basically the same in the UK? Yeah, they are. They're basically the same. I think there are differing obligations in terms of the length of time that the records have to be kept. In the UK, it's four years from the end of the year in which the activity took place. Yeah, I think in the US it's five years. Um, so, which is which is actually the standard OFAC record keeping provision generally lasts five years, um, and and. It, it, it does, does it operate the same way in terms of this is kind of a safe harbor provision? So if you if you comply in good faith, um, even if it turns out that you are wrong, that the oil actually was over the, the price cap, if you can if you can show that you did this diligence, essentially you have a, a full defense as long as you know you relied in good faith on the, the the records. I don't think that's necessarily the same here in the UK in the sense that. Um, OFSI has been given the authority to impose civil penalties on a strict liability basis. So there's, there's, you know, OFSI does not need to show any reasonable cause to suspect. It's a straightforward you breached. Interesting. I mean, so so in in the OFAC guidance, they actually they they actually specifically mentioned that what this safe harbor process is designed to do is shield anyone from the strict liability that would usually apply. Um, but basically what you have to do is you, you have to show that you inadvertently dealt in the 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 price of you know the, the, the in, in Russian oil that was above the cap price um, and, and showed that you were essentially lied to um, by somebody along the way and that you didn't have you didn't know or have reason to know that those statements that were made to you about the price were were incorrect or false. I think it certainly, um, I, I think certainly, it would operate as mitigation, or at least it might go further than mitigation in the sense that obviously might choose not to um, enforce at all in circumstances where they were satisfied that economic operators, tier, whether they be tier one, tier two, or tier three, had behaved appropriately. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that seems to be the purpose of these. But again, I, the proof is going to be in the pudding because, you know, on the one hand, if you have these certifications, it seems like the message or at least the implicit message is you should be fine. On the other hand, my guess is that there will always be facts from which, especially in hindsight, maybe you could have known that the certifications were wrong. And so, yeah, that seems to negate the good faith, you know, the the safe harbor provision. And that's one of the warnings that's actually given in the guidance, in in the guidance in the UK, which is basically you can, you know, you can collate all of the material that you need to collate, but you need to do appropriate due diligence in order to satisfy yourself that you can rely on those att attest they're called att attestations in the UK parlance. Now, how about so? I guess it's still early because it, 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 you know, oil takes a long time to transport qu quite often, and the the first, at least in the U.S. side, the first wind down or say the the first, you know, uh, it, 
the first window for for enforcement really didn't start till January 19th because if the oil had shipped by December 5th, then uh, it just had to arrive at its at its final destination by by January 19th um, for the price caps not to apply. So that for now they apply to everything. I mean, if it was even if it was shipped after before December 5th, that the oil hasn't arrived yet, the price caps at least theoretically apply. I, I haven't really had many questions come up on this yet. I'm wondering if you've heard anything from your clients about compliance burdens or people checking their forms or anything like that? No, it's been pretty quiet so far. Yeah, I'm actually a little surprised. I mean, a, a year ago, a year ago when these sanctions went into place, uh, I mean, I, I, I assume it was similar for you. I mean, I, I couldn't catch my breath. And this year, you know, the price caps went into place. And, I, you know, I, I know we, we both have clients who are at least in industries that touch on the price caps, I really haven't heard much of anything. No, it's been pretty, um, it's kind of almost eerily quiet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess part of it is that we're talking about by definition, because both the UK and the US have the oil import bans, oil that is going somewhere else besides, you know, the US or UK. But I would still think, you know, the companies that are in the insurance industry and the oil trading industry, that they would start to have questions about the price caps. And I, I'm really, I, I, I haven't heard a thing. I suspect they're still finding their feet because, you know, it's very yeah. new um, legislation, isn't it? In both On both yeah. sides of the, of the Atlantic. Um, yeah, and I, it it may also be true that a lot of companies got out of the Russian market because I did have a lot of clients who completely divested, and so they may have just not been trading in Russian oil, even though they could have. And for the tier one operators, they may not have made their reports yet because you know they've got right. they they've got forty days to do so, and they can um, compile they can compile you know multiple entry reports and file them every 30 days yeah so so i guess we're at the very beginning of this i guess the the other question that i have kind of is we've got the 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 broader in some ways prohibition coming that applies to petroleum products at least in the u.s that comes into place i think on february 5th is it the same in the uk yeah it's the same in the uk so we will have things like diesel and all of the other good stuff Interesting. So, so I guess we'll, and, and I'm not hearing anything on, on those yet any either, but you know, if, if we don't have clients who are even in the, the crude oil shipping business or the maritime services business related to that, asking questions even after the prohibition comes into place, I guess it's not that surprising that we're not hearing much from companies where the prohibition hasn't even started. Yeah. Just, just returning to the whole the scope of the maritime services. One thing that I think is interesting, which has come out of the EU guidance, is confirmation that classification services are excluded from the definition of maritime services. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and and is there in in both the the, the well certainly the UK and 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 the EU? Did they have a definition of crude oil that fits the harmonised tariff schedule, or did they use a different one? Um, I think we use, we may use slightly different um, codes than you use. Got it. It's either HS or CN. 
but I think okay. it's I can't I can't off the top of my head I can't remember what, what the code was. Okay, I'm just wondering if they because it seems like it has been so coordinated. I'm wondering if they even coordinated the the tariff codes, but it sounds like they probably didn't. So I guess I, I guess from from here, um, the next thing that we would potentially see is is has Opsi provided any um, confirmation that it believes that it has the authority to issue these price caps? Has it responded to any of the critiques about whether or not it can can engage in um, trade regulation as opposed to financial services regulation? It has been remarkably silent. As you know, I, Steve and I at Stevenson Harwood have been quite quite exercised by this for a little while, and there has been no nothing coming out of Opsi, officially or otherwise, as to what their position is. So it's, one can only assume that they think they've got it. Yeah, I mean, so so I guess you know from from maybe from their perspective, I, I think if it were OFAC, what OFAC would would say to uh, an, an argument like this is, well, we're just regulating services, and so there's financing services that's within our realm, um, and there's uh, there's insurance, and that's within our realm. But the the problem, as I see it, I mean, it also is regulates brokering. Um, customs brokering it, it it regulates ship flagging i mean it is a lot broader than just financial services so and I, I, yeah i think the other issue is you know the regulation the russia regulation um ha, is split between financial sanctions and trade sanctions and you know again another thing which i think is interesting and we'll query whether it's overreach in respect of OFSI is in respect of the trust sanctions, OFSI has been given the powers to enforce them as well. And 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 who uh, who under the UK law, uh, the Russian sanctions law that that uh, OFSI is operating under, uh, who has the power to enforce trade sanctions? Generally speaking, it you, it would be investigated by the ECJU or BEIS, B E I S. Um, that's the export control ex, export control joint unit, um, and then who would refer their cases for for prosecution to HMRC or to other prosecuting authorities, potentially the NCA. Interesting. I mean, that sounds a little bit like our system is set up. So OFAC, you know, it, at least starts from the Treasury and usually. At least its its history was that it focused on trade sanctions, and then we have the Commerce Department that really focuses on export controls. But in a lot of the sanctions programs, OFAC has kind of taken over the field. But it it shares jurisdiction sometimes with BIS. But the but the trade caps, even though they, you know, touch on some areas where, you know, I mean, honestly, when you read the prohibition in um, when you read the prohibition in the directive or the determination that was put out by the Treasury Department, it is phrased in terms of exportation, re-exportation, uh, sale or supply directly or indirectly from the United, you know, from the United States, and then by a United States person of covered services. So, to the extent we're talking about exports, um, you know, you'd think that potentially commerce could have a role, but here it's all been the Treasury. 
Yeah, I <laughs> I think the UK enforcement agencies are in something of disarray. Um, it's clear that Offsea is overrun. They are recruiting significantly. They're looking to double their work for, workforce within this year. Um, but the ECJU are in similar disarray, it seems to me. You know, I think they're very used to dealing with export control licenses and they're not familiar at all with the trade sanctions. Just to give you an example, we had a we received a letter in respect of a license application that we had made in May 2022 for something which was very clearly trade sanctions related. And our client received a, re a response within the last week, couple of weeks or so. And the, the statement from the ECJU was, have you not spoken with Offsy? <laughs> So it took them nine months to, to tell you to go talk to somebody else? Yeah, and obviously just <laughs> simply don't have the authority to issue licenses for trade right. sanctions. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's a good example of how, uh, you know, one of the things that has come out of the Russian sanctions, I think more on the UK and the EU side than on the US side, is kind of a, for the first time, these sanctions authorities are starting to flex their muscles and and issue new regulations and and start to talk about enforcement and people seem to be taking it very seriously but there's always some growing pains i've seen it a lot in the eu and it sounds like the uk is certainly going through those as well yeah i mean at least in the uk we have um you know we have penalties in place and uh in the eu Basically, the, the Commission had to put out a um, directive, effectively, to require member states to have effective penalties for sanctions breaches. Wow. Wow. Well, so I guess on the price caps, anything else to add? I mean, I think right now we're kind of waiting for the questions to come in and waiting for the, the newest um, petroleum products cap to, to go into place. But on the on the US side of the side of the pond, I think we are in a wait and see mode. I think there was a lot of talk beforehand about the price caps, but um, so far quiet on this front. It might be worthwhile just saying a few words about the exceptions. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about the exceptions. So one of the exceptions is oil products which merely transit Russia. So specifically, I guess, the oil originating from Kazakhstan, that's not subject to the price cap. And and in fact, it's, it's interesting. So we at least, I, I know OFAC had some guidance on this uh, in connection with the import ban relating to Russian origin oil, that there was some guidance in connection with that um, prohibition back in, I think, March or April, that said the same thing in connection with the import ban, that they were not counting Kazakhstan oil that transported Russia as Russian oil. It had to be Russian origin oil. So it sounds like the price caps are operating in the same way, that it's basically only oil that actually comes from Russia and not just transiting. Yeah. And the other thing is obviously tank healing. You know, residue left in tanks right. is not covered by the 
price cap, but it does apply to commingling. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very important. I mean, because I have actually uh, not in connection with the price caps, but have had questions before about you know commingling because it's apparently in these tankers it's very hard to get the tanks completely clean, and so you know there's almost always some form of commingling if you've if you've got a tanker that's ever carried um, the sort of oil that you don't want to have anything to do with, and so. Um, it's good that they provided that that guidance because I, I've had questions come up with it in connection with other oil sanctions programs, let's just say. And then in just, just in relation to the reporting obligations, um, they are quite complicated. But a tier one entity must report to OFSI within 40 days of each transaction where there are multiple reports. These can be consolidated. I think I mentioned that earlier. Um, tier two and tier three entities transacting directly with a tier one entity must request and obtain confirmation that the tier one entity has reported its activities to OFSI as required. And that's quarterly for tier two entities and periodically for tier three entities. Um, and I, I guess what's, what's significant here is that most, lots of the tier three entities are likely to be insurers. So, you know, the reporting obligations will be in line with policy and periods ending. And, um, and, and again, the, the attestation requirements can be satisfied by policy wording, which I think is quite interesting and at least helpful to the tier three entities. Yeah, that that is the most most helpful. I mean, I, I will say it sounds like the UK burdens are significantly more than the US. I mean, the US is, uh, um, you know, get the attestations and maintain records, or you'll be you've got a big problem if there's an enforcement action. But it is not it's not a it's not a reporting requirement per se. It's just a pr protection and record keeping requirement. Yeah, there um, is a reporting. There's a positive reporting obligation here in the UK and the, the the rules say that where the relevant tier two tier three entity doesn't receive the attestation or other other confirmation from a tier one entity they're required to inform OFSI of that fact and then withdraw their services as soon as reasonably practical there's some guidance around what is reasonably practicable because if a ship is if a, if a vessel is at sea it's you know it it wouldn't it there might be significant difficulties in basically withdrawing insurance cover during the period whilst it's at sea, um, and then if you're dealing with a non-UK tier one entity, tier two entities have to inform OFSI of this fact every quarter, and tier three entities again annually, periodically, depending on what their particular obligations are. And based on those reporting obligations, I, I suspect that you'll start to see enforcement actions sooner in the UK than you will in the US. I mean, because in the US, the the fact that somebody hasn't reported anything is not in and of itself going to be a problem. And I, I, I think that, um, you know, with the affirmative reporting obligations and, you know, particularly the one that you just mentioned, Sue, which is the, the obligation to let them know if something has gone wrong, if you're kind of one of the tier two or three three uh, persons in the chain or companies in the chain, um, 
that is much more likely to start producing reports of violations sooner rather than later than uh, than the U than on the U.S. side. That may be right, but I think it depends upon whether <laughs> yeah, yeah. OFC has the manful, uh, manpower to actually review the well, right, right, review um, the reports and identify gaps. No, I think that's I, and and that you know that it can be a challenge on the OFAC side too. I know that the that the U.S. Um, enforcement authorities are devoting considerable resources to enforcing the Russian sanctions generally. Whether or not they're going to, I haven't seen any evidence that they're going to be focused on compliance with the price caps. But again, I, I, I think it's too soon to tell whether or not that's going to be the case. But I, I, um, and then whether they have the extra resources to do this, because it would be pretty demanding from the U.S. side. You'd actually have to figure out who's providing these sorts of services by definition, kind of outside the U.S. and mostly outside the EU. Although I, I, I will say it. it it, you know, you, you talked about some of the exceptions. There's some pretty um, specific general licenses in the U.S. that apply to some of the EU countries, um, Bulgaria, Croatia, and, and landlocked EU um, uh, member states. Uh, and apparently that's to line up with some of the EU regulations on that. And then there's also, uh, there's also a, um, a general license that allows for certain uh, maritime transport from Sakhalin to uh, as long as it's for import into Japan, so it's just, there's some little carve-outs for for some of the some of the allied countries um, and for specific transactions. But for the most part, you're probably talking about transactions that are taking place outside the EU, outside the US, outside the UK, and those are at least traditionally a lot harder to enforce since you know the, the our countries don't have law enforcement agents that are necessarily stationed in those countries with law enforcement, you know, while they have law enforcement authority to carry to, to investigate some of these issues. Yeah, I think that's right. And I suppose we should, we should actually just comment on what the Rus Russia's attitude is in response, Russia's response to the oil price caps, which is to say we will not trade with any entity which enforces the oil price cap. Which is fun, which is in some ways interesting. I mean, it, um, so I guess the price caps won't work if, if nobody who's using them is buying Russian oil and it seems kind of like you have a standoff situation. Maybe that's why we're not hearing anything. The Russians won't sell to anybody who enforces the price caps and uh, the service providers can't provide any services to companies that aren't complying with the price caps. So maybe there's just like not a lot of Russian oil sales, but I haven't heard about that at all either. So, so I would suspect that something else is going on. Yeah. That would there be certainly can't be instinct. Full, full compliance with uh, Russian law and full compliance with uh, UK and, and US law at the same time. Some, something is going to have to give. Well, great. And then I guess the final kind of piece to this puzzle is there is a general license, at least here in the U.S., for emergency services that might otherwise violate these services prohibitions. Um, I haven't seen that come up yet. but Yeah, it's the same license. in the U.K. Great. All right. Well, anything else about the price caps before we go go on to our day, our day jobs? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, you know, it, it repay it, the de detail is in the licenses, and so it you know it certainly repays careful reading. Yeah, definitely. If you have a situation that you think might 
you know, come with an exception to the price cap. It's certainly worth reading. And, you know, if you're a company out there listening and you haven't act, and you're in any of these businesses and you're, you're doing um, providing services, maritime services in the oil trade, uh, if you haven't set up your compliance program, you really need to start because uh, it is quite complex to comply with these regulations in, in my view. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I just wonder whether it's worth saying a final word about the tiers. Sure. So tier one is commodity brokers, traders. Tier two is people in the middle <laughs> intermediaries. <laughs> right. So tier one is entities that are can be expected to know the prevailing market price and therefore... Right. They're buying it. Yeah. From the original seller. Yeah. Tier two are intermediaries. So they might be financial institutions who are who are financing specific transactions. And in the UK, at least, um, a distinction is made between financial institutions who are financing specific trade and financial institutions who are financing general trade. This, this, the first category was, would be tier two, and the second category would be tier three. And the, the tier two are those entities who might have some information about the, the market price of oil and the price and how the, whether what's being purchased. And then tier three is the entities that are relying on information from tier one, tier two. Right. So you've got the ship owners and the carriers and, and the insurers yeah. who are yeah, yeah, far yeah. enough out of the loop that they're not going to be expected to know directly what the price is, but they'll have to rely on tier one and tier two. Yeah. And no doubt, you know, no doubt individual operators would need to get their own advice as to which category they fall into, because I can, I can see the, I can foresee entities falling between the cracks. And are the are the obligations, uh, you know, different depending upon the tier? Because in the states, um, you know, if you're tier one, you've got to actually get and retain the the actual uh, price information. If you're tier two, it the the guidance is a little bit mushy. It it basically says that you have to request and retain the price information to the extent practicable. But if you can't get it from a from the tier one customer counterparty, then um, you can get an attestation. So, and then tier three just needs to get an attestation from somebody in the chain, either tier one or tier two. Yeah, but at each stage, um, there's a lot of focus in the guidance on due diligence and being able to satisfy yourself that you can rely on the attestation or the information that's been provided. Yeah, and and OFAC does a little bit of that. So OFAC talks about you know compliance measures. So for tier one companies, they should be updating the terms of their contracts and updating the invoice structure to make sure that the there's an itemized oil price. With respect to tier two, um, you know they they're really supposed to do the training to try and make sure that their their people understand that there is this price cap in place, um, and that they've that they're you know, essentially the oil buyers are are aware of this. So they're essentially trying to use questionnaires for their the, the companies that they are 
essentially providing the services for, um, and then putting sanctions compliance clauses into their contracts. And I think that's that's really the, the main tier three um, diligence beyond the, the attestation form is that they also have to have sanctions compliances and have guidance to make sure that their staff is aware of this issue. Yeah, it's, it's pretty similar here. What I did, what is different is that, slightly different at least, is that the US and the EU, EU's guidance in terms refer to the need that you've just referred to, the potential need that you've just referred to, which is to have itemized invoices, which actually separate out the various costs that are being incurred, you know, the costs of transportation, insurance, in addition to the actual oil price. And the UK doesn't, but it it does refer to the need to be careful and scrutinise invoices to ensure that oil, you know, the oil price cap isn't being manipulated in order to make it look invoices are, aren't being manipulated in, in order to make it look like there's compliance with the cap when there isn't. And actually, the other thing that's quite helpful from the guidance is that the the UK guidance gives examples of potential manipulations that you have to look out for. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I wanted to have this discussion is because this sanctions regime is so different than anything that I remember seeing before, because usually you either have a prohibition or you have a general license that allows certain things, and they don't kind of work hand in glove where they say, you can't do X unless the unless the price of the commodity it falls within a certain range. And so, it, you know, it, it's a novel sanctions technique combined with what I, I view as a, a far higher compliance burden than any other sanctions provision that I've seen. I mean, it's much easier to tell somebody no or to say yes, but it's so much harder to say yes, but only if the following conditions apply and then count on people in the um, sales force and in the business practice to make sure on the ground that those conditions are applying. So I'm, I'm curious to see how well this plays out. And what, what prompted me to say that was the your discussion about the invoicing. I mean, that that what what the sanctions authorities are essentially expecting is that their sanctions are going to change the entirety of the commercial invoicing practices in this area because I don't think you know price per gallon was necessarily factored into itemized invoices as a general matter and this assumes that it will have to be in order to comply with these sanctions yeah all right. Well, brave new world. Um, I think it sounds like the consensus is too soon to tell whether or not it's um, having an, any effect or what the effect is. But uh, I expect we'll hear soon enough uh, from the enforcement authorities what they think the effect is. Yeah, it's certainly going to be interesting. Watch this space. Yes, watch this space. Maybe watch this space to see a see a challenge to offseas authority at some point um, in the near future. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Sue. It's great talking to you. Thanks very much, Tim. Take care. Produced by HeartCast Media.